This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Believe it or not, with all that is at stake in Georgia, with the allegations of a president uh, who tried to steal an election, this messy business, this legal drama about this messy business is now threatening the future of District Attorney Willis's role at the helm of this important case. Uh, let's bring in uh, my colleague and friend, CNN anchor, senior legal analyst, uh, Laura Coates. Laura, the, so bottom line, do you think the witness, Mr. Bradley, do you think his testimony has undermined Fannie Willis's credibility? I think it has undermined the credibility of the arguments made by both Nathan Willis, Nathan Wade, excuse me, and also Fannie Willis for these reasons. First of all, here's why we're here. This person, you may recall, was already called to testify about a week and a half ago. The reason he left is because of the attorney-client privilege. Now, you know, if you are actually communicating with your attorney in furtherance of getting legal advice, it is privilege, and that privilege belongs to the client, not the attorney. The judge had what was called an in-camera discussion. That's a fancy way of saying, you and I are going to talk one-on-one with no one present. I'm going to determine whether or not your conversations that you had should fall within that privilege. The judge made a ruling. They said, look, as it relates to communications about whether there was a relationship between Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade, that ain't privileged. You can testify to it. He doesn't want to be here for that reason. So now he's being asked questions about that. And now he's got a kind of convenient amnesia. He doesn't recall a lot of different details. He comes across as somebody who was gossiping with the attorney that's bringing this disqualification proceeding, that he was aware that the motion was about gathering information. And nonetheless, he disclosed that he says that they were engaged in in relationship earlier than they said. But now today, he says it was all speculation, all speculation. He had no personal knowledge. And he kept using a phrase, anything I learned was from my client, which became synonymous with Nathan Wade was the one who told me. Now, there was a really important moment with Sadow. That is the attorney for Donald Trump. Remember, this is the one who is saying, look, I don't believe anything you have to say. He asked him, wait a second, you're speculating? You were asked by an attorney that you knew was representing a co-defendant in this case. And in return, you offer speculation. Why not just say, if you really didn't know, I don't know. He offered no sound explanation as to why. The judge seems throughout this entire proceeding a little impatient compared to the first time we saw this entire thing. Why? Because he wants them to focus on the specific nature of the testimony. And remember, Jake, we're all here not because this is some part of Real Housewives episode or we are just nosy. It is because they're asking to disqualify Fannie Willis mm -hmm. based on a conflict of interest that would make a defendant impossible to have a fair trial. And let's listen. Uh, they have resumed. I've spoken to Mr. Wade personally in a year, two years, actually, when I left the firm. Miss Willis. I never. Um, my interaction with Miss Willis was never um, where I would pick up the phone and talk to her or that she would um, or anything like that. 
So you, you didn't hang out with Miss Willis? You didn't have a personal relationship with her? No, I, I never had a personal relationship. I mentioned before that I went to a dinner that was after she um, was elected um, that was at a steakhouse, but it was some 75 to 100 people there. So you knew of her, you just didn't have a, a business relationship or a personal relationship with her, or at least a close one. I knew of her from my, she was in the DA's office and I had criminal cases, but I did not personally know her, no. And not having known her, not really hanging out with her, uh, you've got a contract from her office. I'm gonna just object as to cumulative asked and answered throughout the all right, Mr. Kishore, I think we covered this ground on the 16th about the contracts. Do you have a, are you going somewhere else with this? I am, Judge. If you give me a little latitude, I'll right. tie it right now. Okay, you may proceed. You got a contract from the office not knowing or having a good relationship or a good working business relationship with Ms. Willis. That's correct. Uh, that's because Nathan Wade steered that contract to you. I don't know how it came about, but it was presented to me um, at the office about the contract, correct? Who presented it to you, Mr. Wade? Yes. Um, is that, and he owed you money, you said at one point. Say that again? Owed you money at one point? I don't recall saying that he owes me money. Did he owe you money at one point? Not that I recall saying that Mr. Wade owes me or owed me money. I don't recall ever saying that. I didn't ask whether you ever said that. I said, did he owe you or did he uh, owe you money in the past? No, he didn't owe me money. And so you, he steered this contract to you, to your office, and you weren't really talking to him? You hadn't talked to him for two years? The contract was in 2021. I didn't leave until 2022. So you didn't talk with him that whole time? I left in 2022. I haven't really spoke to him since 2022 is what I stated. When I left June of, um, of 2022, around June, August dates of 2022, other than your one last question, other than your attorney, who did you speak with today about giving testimony in this case today? I spoke to my attorneys, Charles Graham and B.C. Chopra. And I have nothing further, Your Honor. All right. Uh, and again, I'll just double check to make sure. Did Mr. Cromwell ever join us by Zoom? Do we? All right, thank you. So just for the record, Mr. Cromwell has been apparently watching the proceeding. He had waived his client's presence and didn't have any other questions as well. So turning it over to Mr. Abadi. And I have no questions. All right. Mr. Bradley, you can step down. Thank you, sir. Um, Judge, you want these exhibits? Uh, yeah. I'll take those. Okay. Thank you. Right. Excuse me. Right. Uh, I have a follow-up based on some questions. For example, and it's just about the text. And what, uh, just by way of proffer, what about the text? Just to admit, so when other people asked 
about the text. Some of them weren't in the record today, so I organized them. They're the ones that have been talked about today. So I just organized them. I just wanted for a point of reference to have them. Okay. okay. Um, and do we need Mr. Bradley for that? I, I don't believe so. But. Have you marked them? Yes. Have you showed them to the state? I gave the, a copy to the state. But so these Mr. Are, Bradley, just hang on just for one second, just to make sure. Well, I'll give you all of them. Getting so. <coughs> all of them? And Molly's looking at that. Mr. Bradley handed me uh, Defense Exhibit 23, 24, 25. Because y'all didn't realize that they were this. in my folder. Oh, is that from the hearing? Yeah, from on Friday? <laughs> All right, well, thanks for returning those. <laughs> Let me make sure. <laughs> Okay, so I've got 23, 24, 25. Anything else in your binder? <laughs> All right, good. Okay, and have we come to any conclusions on, uh, what, I'm sorry, how did you mark it? All right, so it sounds like they're wrapping up there. Let's uh, come back here uh, and, and talk to Laura Coates. One of the things that's interesting about this case, Laura, uh, is that this gentleman, the witness, Mr. Bradley, Used to be, he was the he was the divorce attorney for Mr. Wade, yes. with whom Fannie Willis had this relationship, and they used to be law partners. Mm -hmm. And then there was apparently some sort of falling out. Yeah. And was it during this period when they had the falling out that Mr. Bradley was quite the chatty Kathy about the relationship that his former client had with Fannie Willis? He was asked that precise question whether. Nathan Wade and him were still friends at the time that he communicated with the attorney, Ms. Merchant, who was the one leading this motion to disqualify Fannie Willis in the office. He had a really long pregnant pause. And then he said, yes, we were friends. And you could feel the weight of that moment. Why? Because he's in a very tough position, not only as an attorney who has been you know, having to be compelled to really testify here today, but also because he was aware that the nature of the communications from Ms. Merchant was about fact-gathering, and he had information that he was willing to relay. Now, the credibility thing comes in here, Jake, because he is now saying on the stand today that he didn't really have any basis for the things he was saying. He was speculating. But do you know he was asked by one of the attorneys, did you lie to Ms. Merchant when you said these things about their relationship, whether there were things like, did Nathan Wade have a garage door opener to Fannie Willis's private home or office, whether they had sex in this facility or not, whether they were romantically involved? And he, he said, I don't recall. That's mm -hmm. with respect to whether he was lying. He then said, I was speculating. The lawyer said, we're both lawyers. That's a Weasley word. He was, you know, a, a little bit argumentative there, but said, did you lie? He again said, I was speculating. I can't recall. The reason this is so important here is, again, why we're here. This is a motion to disqualify a prosecutor and the office in a very consequential case that originally had 18 co-defendants, one of whom is a former president of the United right. States. If she is disqualified based on some finding that she financially or personally benefited, then another committee, a prosecuting counsel in Georgia, then steps in and decides who will replace her and her team. There's no timeline when you got to do that. There's no requirement that they follow that grand jury's indictment. They could dismiss the case. They could expand the case. They could take away some defendants. This is really consequential. And here we are talking about decisions made, um, talking about the nature of a relationship, 
and a judge trying to decide whether the moving party has met their burden to disqualify her. What is exactly the burden to disqualify her based on? Because let's assume, well, we know that Fonnie Willis and Nathan yeah. Wade had a relationship. That is true. Uh, and we know that she was in charge of his salary and he was paid money, right? I mean, that's accurate as well. Um, I guess two things. One is, of course, all of this was just stunningly reckless by D District Attorney Willis uh, and Mr. Wade. I mean, stunningly reckless. You're trying to prosecute a former president of the United States. What are you doing, doing anything, anything uh, that could undermine that incredibly important case, the yeah. case of your life? In, like, whether it's a DUI, not paying your taxes, having an illicit relationship, whatever it is. So let's put that aside for one second, mm -hmm. okay? Because obviously, I, gr I grant the motion of recklessness. Mm -hmm. But what, what specifically about this behavior undermines the case that she is building? That's the rub. There is nothing that we have heard so far that has talked about any aspect of the underlying allegations contained in the indictment. This case is about a conflict of interest based on that admitted relationship, but the requirement and the burden of proof is that that relationship, that conflict of interest provided a benefit, a personal benefit, likely financial to Fonnie Willis, such that it would make it impossible for Donald Trump or any of those remaining co-defendants to have a fair trial. In other words, something about the nature of it would put the thumb on the scale to such a degree that your intention and your incentive is to keep the case going or to try the case to continue to derive that benefit, not with an eye towards justice or to your burden of proof. That's the rub here. Now, they have to actually prove that. Now, the prosecution, who you're seeing on the, on the screen right now, they have normally the burden of proof in the criminal case. They always right. have it. In this instance, it is the party that's trying to disqualify and that has to prove that conflict. So far, what, what do we have? We've got an admitted romantic affair. Yep, you've got that. You've got discussions about trips that were taken and payments that were either reimbursed or otherwise. Notably, you mm -hmm. have Tom, Terrence Bradley on the stand contradicting an earlier statement by Nathan Wade that he never used his credit card, there was never reimbursement, there may have been other trips that were not accounted for. But ultimately, Jake, they have to prove that the money that came in was the personal, was personally uh, benefited or, or a beneficiary of that was Bonnie Willis. But remember, you're talking about a man who's got more than one source of income. Why is that important? Well, because for you to draw that through line between what Fonnie Willis and her office were providing as a financial salary to mm -hmm. uh, Nathan Wade and what was ultimately spent would assume only one source of income. There's a commingling of sorts of funds between his private practice, right. his existing income and salary and balance, and this. And they have not yet proven that $1 is tied to the employment. Right. So, look, the, if this were Fonnie Willis in a relationship with a juror... Yeah. Or, oh, or, or a witness. Don't put that into the universe. No, 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 but a, a juror or a witness, I can understand. Sure, you can't do that. That's corrupt. Mm -hmm. This is a relationship with her own prosecutor. Yeah. Right? Again, incredibly reckless, and I'm not justifying it. But the idea is that somehow she only brought this case so that she could hire him and then they could go on vacation together? Is that is that the insinuation? That is the insinuation that really lends itself to absurdity, right? Yeah. And, and by the way, uh, 
This is not the first instance you've heard of a romantic relationship between attorneys. I mean, defense counsels and prosecutors have had romantic liaisons, cops as witnesses and beyond, judges and beyond. This is not something that is the most novel concept. The issue here, you have to really, you know, um, stretch the imagination to suggest it was all this conspiracy. I know how we can stay together. We'll make this case a RICO case, have all these charges, have 18 defendants, including Donald Trump, who you know is going to have a ferocious legal team, who you've seen so far. Also, we can take occasional trips to Florida or do a day trip to places like right, Tennessee that's and what beyond. I'm saying, like that. It doesn't make sense. But here's the problem. Optics does have an impact on a jury, but the judge in this case yeah. is the one who has to decide did you prove to me that those defendants cannot have a fair trial, that the thumb is such on the scale that you have undermined the pursuit of justice? So far, we've got a lot of details, a lot of questions about when it started, but you need that through line for this judge. Yeah, I mean, the only thing that I have had conclusively proven to me so far is that there are a lot of reckless lawyers in Atlanta, um, <laughs> including the witness today who is just like, why is he gossiping about a former client? I mean, is that even, well, I mean, let, let, do we just, gossip? Yeah. No, but I mean, like, is that not grounds for disbarment to like be telling secrets about your former client? Is that not, I mean, well, all right. Don't you know, answer that. I'm going to come back to that. Uh, joining us now to parse even more of what today's testimony means for this pretty singular legal case of CNN senior legal analyst and former assistant U.S. attorney, Ellie Honig. We're also joined by Charlie Bailey, former senior assistant district attorney of Fulton County. Charlie has worked closely with Fonnie Willis. His wife is on Willis's communications team. He was inside the courtroom for today's hearing. I'm sure he's going to have a couple things to say about what I just said. Ellie, let me start with what you heard in today's uh, testimony by Terrence Bradley. Uh, do you think uh, that Fonnie Willis uh, is in any trouble today based on his testimony? Well, Jake, I think what we just saw is two hours of preposterous, non-credible testimony from Mr. Bradley. Mr. Bradley is a lawyer. He's an officer of the court. He's testifying about events that are recent and important. And yet when it came to virtually anything of any substance, his response was, I don't recall or I was speculating. And let's understand how this person came onto the radar to begin with. He was asked by the defense lawyers in writing, in a text, did the relationship between Nathan Wade and Fonnie Willis start before... The DA hired Nathan Wade, and his answer in writing was, quote, absolutely. And then on his own, he offered up specifics about when and how they met. He said they met at this particular CLE, Continuing Legal Education Conference. And today he said, well, I was speculating. That's ridiculous. Why would you make up out of whole cloth some specific place where people met? And when he was asked about why did you speculate, you know what his answer was? I don't recall. There's no way you can credit that witness. The question now, though, and you were just getting to this, is, is there a concrete enough conflict of interest made out here? I agree with you. I agree with Laura. The waters are very muddy on that. But the problem is the DA and Nathan Wade have now testified under oath that this relationship started after Mr. Wade was hired. And if that turns out to be false, then they have an even bigger problem on their hands. So, Charlie, you were inside the courtroom today. Do you agree with Ellie? And what stood out to you? No, I don't agree with much that Ellie said, but, you know, what we saw here today is uh, a witness that said they don't recall um, when the relationship started. It's not in dispute that a relationship started at some point. It did start. He doesn't recall when, and he said that when he was gossiping, that he was gossiping. He was gossiping and speculating, and I think, you know, anybody knows he shouldn't have done that, obviously. You shouldn't be gossiping about things this serious, but we already know some of the things he said were flat out false. 
There's an illusion in Ms. Merchant's motion that they lived together in 2020, right? You remember that? She put that in the motion. She said that came from Mr. Bradley. Well, we know that's not true from the testimony of Fonny's father. There's this further uh, uh, statement about them taking the daughter out to California to live. She's, the daughter's never lived in California. So why was he making up things out of whole cloth? I don't know. Sometimes people lie. Maybe he was upset about the way he was fired from the firm. But none of that has anything to do with the charge made by Ms. Merchant and Mr. Sadow and these other attorneys. And to me, that is the most reckless conduct here. Ellie, you uh, intimated that if it can be proven uh, that the relationship between District Attorney Fonnie Willows and her prosecutor, Mr. Wade, if that relationship started before she hired him, uh, that that would be a real blow for her. Why would she lie about such a thing? Does that relate more to are you supposed to hire somebody that you're having a relationship with or might that have to do with his divorce. So this goes to the heart of the whole dispute here. The narrative offered up by Donald Trump and the co-defendants, Mr. Roman, was essentially this. Fonnie Willis was in a romantic relationship with Mr. Wade first. Mr. Wade, a man who's never prosecuted a felony criminal trial, was then chosen by Fonnie Willis, according to the defendants, because of that relationship to lead this massive case. And then as a result of that, Mr. Wade's been paid hundreds of thousands of dollars, some of which have made their way to Fonnie Willis indirectly through vacations and that sort of thing. The counter narrative that the DA chose to pursue is no, no, no. He was hired for his merits. There was no pre-existing romantic relationship, but after he was hired, the relationship developed, these things happen. There was never any sort of plan or intentionality about it. So the question of when was an important issue to begin with, and now it's amplified many times over because the DA has taken a very strong under oath position that it did not start until after. And the question to me, Jake, is who will the judge credit? Will the judge credit that scene that we just saw from Mr. Bradley? I don't recall. I don't recall. It was speculation. Or will he credit the written specific texts that Mr. Bradley sent before? When asked again if there was a relationship beforehand, his response was absolutely. And then he gave details. So it's hard to believe he was lying then. And then today in court, when it was all I don't recall, today was the truthful part. Charlie, I want you to listen to what District Attorney Fonnie Willis testified earlier this month when she was asked about her relationship with her prosecutor, Nathan Wade. Take a listen. I just I want to be clear because my credibility is being evaluated here, right? We were friends. We hung out prior to November of 2021. In November of 2021, I hired him. I do not consider our relationship to have become romantic until early of 2022. Has he ever visited you at the place you laid your head? So let's be clear, because you lied in this, this. Let me tell you which one you lied in, right here. I think you lied right here. No, 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 no. This is the truth, Judge. And this is, it, it, it is a lie. It is a lie. Now, since then, Charlie, a private investigator working for Trump uh, says that they've uncovered cell phone data alleging some contradictions, including visits from uh, Wade, the prosecutor, to the area of Fonnie Willis's condo in 2021. That is er er earlier than when she testified the relationship with him began and at hours that would suggest that it was not just a how you doing visit. Uh, how do you respond to that? Well, first, this person that they had analyzed the cell phone data is not an expert. And he said that in his own affidavit. It's not admissible in court. I've handled cell tower data as a prosecutor. The very first thing is 
it, it's not like if I handed it to you, Jake, it's just a spreadsheet with a bunch of numbers on it. You wouldn't know what to do with it. I wouldn't know what to do with it. You have to have an expert to even be able to tell you what it is. This guy says in his own affidavit, he's not an expert. So that's the first thing. Secondly, though, they already testified, both Fonnie and Mr. Wade, that they were at that condo in Hapeville uh, more than 10 times in 2021. If you even accept the, the, the explanation of the private investigator that Nathan Wade's phone pinged down in the neighborhood 35 times, that's not inconsistent. Furthermore, in the response of the DA's office filed, they were able to point out that Fani was in a different place upwards of 10 times in those specific, thing, specific times that the defense attorneys are trying to say uh, Nathan and Fani are there together. So it doesn't even stand for the proposition that the defense is trying to offer it for. It's not contradictory. It's corroboration mm -hmm. of what's already been testified to. All right. Thanks, Ellie. Thanks, Charlie. Appreciate it. Coming up next, New York City's mayor breaking with decades of precedent. He says he wants a change in the sanctuary city policy there. That developing news ahead. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. In our national lead, New York City's Mayor Eric Adams is breaking with decades of precedent. Today, he called for drastic changes to the city's sanctuary city policies. The shift could land undocumented immigrants accused of a serious crime into the hands of ICE, or Immigration and Customs Enforcement, officers. The mayor's new push comes in the wake of several high-profile crimes involving recently arrived migrants in the city of New York, including the recent shooting of a tourist during a rivalry inside a Times Square clothing store. Here's how the mayor is justifying his desire for a shift. I don't believe people who are violent in our city and commit repeated crimes should have the privilege of being in our city. I want, I want to go back to the standards of the previous mayors who I believe subscribe to my belief that people who are suspected of, of committing uh, serious crimes in this city uh, should be held accountable. 
CNN's Gloria Pasmino has been following the story for us. Gloria, how significant is this policy shift? Well, Jake, it's pretty significant in, sense, in the sense that words really matter in this debate, right? Here you have Eric Adams, the mayor of the largest city in the country, who is dealing with this migrant crisis. And as you said, following these high-profile uh, crimes that have involved undocumented uh, migrants, he has taken this new position, suggesting that the city needs to reevaluate its sanctuary policy. Now, New York has had at sanctuary city policies on its books going back all the way to the 1980s. Mayor Ed Koch was mayor, but those changes were enshrined into law in 2014. And essentially what they say is that the NYPD cannot cooperate with federal authorities to enforce immigration law. One thing that's important that's gotten lost in the discussion here is that there are exceptions in the law where people who are convicted, and that is the key word there, convicted of certain crimes, including violent offenses, are eventually turned over to immigration enforcement. But the mayor appears to be suggesting he believes the change should happen so that people are turned over when they are accused of a crime. That would be a significant change, something that supporters of sanctuary city uh, policies say would put undocumented and immigrant communities at risk because they are usually more vulnerable to crime and often afraid to reach out to law enforcement. So a significant shift in language here. But as you know, words really matter in this context. Yeah, this also comes after a couple other incidents. You have the murder of Lake and Riley, that uh, UGA nursing student uh, and the undocumented immigrant from Venezuela who was accused uh, of, of killing her, uh, supposedly was uh, arrested and charged with a serious crime in New York City as well and somehow was still able to walk free. And then you have, um, we're showing his image right now in Phoenix, uh, there's this case, or there's this uh, suspect uh, who the local uh, Maricopa County uh, prosecutor refuses to extradite him back to New York because, I believe she's a woman, she says, the prosecutor says, she doesn't trust New York uh, to handle this case because it is a, a sanctuary city, right? So, I mean, it comes, it's not just that incident um, that we talked about at the top with the murder in the, or the, the assault in the, in the, um, store, it's also these other cases. Yeah, and that's why this is so significant, because we've had these high-profile cases, and we've seen how the political conversation has sometimes dominated what should happen during what's essentially uh, the right-to-do process, right? In the case of Arizona, the DA there has sort of uh, taken a political position, saying that the DA here in Manhattan isn't going to properly prosecute the case that, that this man is accused in. Uh, one thing to remember here, Jake, is that these crimes that you just mentioned, if these people were to be convicted of those offenses, the likeliest outcome is that they would be convicted, um, excuse me, that they would be deported uh, at the ending of their of their process. And that's what the whole uh, argument is around, the right to due process and whether or not people are going to get it in the front end of, of uh, allegedly committing a crime or not, if they'll just be turned over to ICE and likely deported without that right to due process. Gloria Pasmina, thanks so much. Uh, coming up next, a moment of truth for President Biden on a critical primary day. Many Democrats in Michigan, a state that propelled him to the White House in 2020, are voting against him right now. 
because of how he is handling this situation in Gaza. We'll explain next. Now to the first 2024 primary in a battleground state and a major test for President Biden's re-election campaign. President Biden is expected to win Michigan's Democratic primary today. That's not in question, but we are waiting to see whether voters in the Wolverine state who have been told to vote uncommitted on the ballot today in order to protest Biden's handling of Israel's war in Gaza will turn out in force and demonstrate their ability to swing the election to Trump in November in Michigan, striking fear in the heart of the White House. Now, we saw Biden try to get out ahead of this vote yesterday with his comments that a ceasefire in Gaza could be near, as near as perhaps next Monday. Meantime, Donald Trump is also favored to win tonight in the Republican primary, but voters also have the option of former Governor Nikki Haley. Haley has received roughly 40% of the vote in South Carolina and New Hampshire, the two previous primaries. Polls closed just under four hours from now. Haley told CNN earlier she would have liked to have campaigned more in Michigan, but she stated this as her goal tonight. Our goal is to be competitive. It's always been to be competitive. And if you're getting 40% in all the early states, that's making a point. Haley also making quite a point today by saying if Trump wins the GOP nomination, it would be like, quote, suicide for our country, unquote. Jeff Zeleny is live for us in Detroit. And Jeff, Democratic Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, a member of the squad, she represents that area uh, where you are. She's urging voters to pick uncommitted on their ballot. Um, what could tonight's primary results tell us about Biden's coalition in this key battleground state? Well, Jake, one thing it will show is really how deep those cracks are in the Biden coalition. Of course, uh, former President Joe Biden, if you think back to four years ago right now, he really consolidated the entire um, Democratic Party from left uh, through the center. Uh, that now is a question. There are many concerns among the Arab communities here, the Muslim American communities as well, but it extends far beyond that. This is not just simply limited to uh, Dearborn, which of course is where the concentration of Arab Americans and Muslim Americans live. It extends to younger voters, progressive voters, black voters, others. So, uh, Jake, this is something that the White House is viewing as a warning sign. They've already gotten the message to some degree. The president was here earlier this month. He sent his advisors out a couple times. Uh, the question is, though, will there be a policy change? And that's what this vote for uncommitted is about tonight. It's a protest vote for sure. They're trying to urge the administration to change their policy in the Middle East. Now, the White House has been saying uh, consistently it's not going to be guided by a public opinion or political opinion. But, Jake, there is no doubt about it that Michigan is so central to either side's reelection here. Those 15 electoral votes in November will be key to Joe Biden's reelection or to Donald Trump's election as well. He won in 2016. Joe Biden won in 2020. But the outcome of that uncommitted tonight, the strength of that support certainly is going to show how deep those cracks are in the coalition and how much work the White House has to do and the president has to do in the eight months to come after tonight. Jake. All right, Jess Eleni, thanks so much. Joining us now, Michigan's top election official, Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson. Uh, Secretary Benson, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Uh, you've noted that more than a million early and absentee votes have already been cast, suggesting high turnout. One of the major questions hanging over the Democratic primary today is how many voting uncommitted. Now, in previous primaries, both Democrat and Republican, usually 20,000 people or so vote uncommitted. Uh, I think there was about... 30,000 in the Republican primary four years ago. But generally speaking, it's 20,000. 
Uh, have you seen any of the results? Uh, what do you think would be a high number for this uncommitted effort if we assume that 20,000 is, is the floor? Well, thanks for having me. And no, we don't see any results on any fronts until after the polls close. They're not even calculated by any machines. And so no one knows until after the polls close what anything's going to look like. But I've been traveling the state today and visiting early voting sites in the 10 days prior. And what I've seen is a lot of enthusiasm, frankly, for the president and uh, a lot of uh, recognition of the importance of being heard and that some people feel he is hearing them, especially with the announcement of the call for, you know, attempts for a ceasefire next week. So my job is simply to just to make sure however anyone expresses their vote that they've got the tools to do so. Uh, but we are seeing a lot of voter enthusiasm across the board and a lot of recognition that the eyes of the nation are on Michigan, not just in this election, but will be this fall. And I think voters are going to be uh, participating in a way that reflects the responsibility they feel to really define the future, not just for our state, but for our nation. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer has said it's possible 10,000 people could vote uncommitted. Um, Now, 10,000 is about the margin that Trump won the state by in 2016, uh, although it was uh, Biden won it by about 150,000 in 2020. Um, As I noted, around 20,000 people uncommitted, voted uncommitted in years when there wasn't any sort of campaign for uncommitted. Uh, How high do you think the number could go? When do you think it would be high enough so Biden should worry? So we're looking at one million citizens have already voted. Maybe another million will vote today. Uh, And so on top of that, we're recognizing that in 2012, the uncommitted vote among Democrats was 10 percent of the total Democratic turnout. And that was in 2012, which one could argue is a bit of equivalent year to this one where you've got an incumbent Democratic president running free election in a presidential primary. And then in 2020, as you mentioned, 20,000, which was about 1% of Democrats voted uncommitted and nearly 30,000 or about 4% of Republicans voted uncommitted. So about 5% total. So what we should be looking for really is the percentage of the total turnout that is voting uncommitted on both sides to see if it sends any message. But to also recognize it's really not rare whether whether there is a campaign for uncommitted or not for citizens to choose at this stage of the election to be uncommitted, even when there's an incumbent Democratic president on the ballot who was in 2012, was very popular. So we got to take all of that into the context of what we we read tonight, but also not neglect the fact that there is a clear statement being made by citizens, uh, young voters in particular, as well as citizens throughout Southeast Michigan, that they do want President Biden here. They want him to continue to show up listening to citizens, and they want to see some progress and hopefully an end this terrible conflict overseas, and they expect him as their president to really push to ensure that conflict comes to an end. In 2020, Michigan was among the places where Trump supporters tried to thwart the will of the people. Uh, Protesters stormed a Detroit vote counting center. Armed protesters descended on your home. Uh, Are you worried about that kind of disgusting behavior repeating itself uh, in November? Yeah, you know, what we saw in 2020, particularly after the election, uh, was that people who are unhappy with the results tried to overturn those results. And the the people who felt the brunt of those attacks and those lies were the election workers. And I spoke with an election worker today in Detroit who actually was there in Cobo Hall, what was then Cobo Hall in Detroit in 2020, when people were banging on the doors trying to get in and interfere with the counting process. And he said what I think reflects how we're all kind of feeling is that we're back 
we're here. We are determined to do our jobs and protect the will of the voters. We know what we're up against. We experienced it firsthand in 2020, but we're prepared for any type of challenge and pressure to come again. And we are prepared to protect the votes of the people of Michigan, whatever they may be in 2024. We consider it our duty. We're proud to fulfill our duty. And I see more enthusiasm and devotion to that responsibility than I frankly ever have before in this position as the chief election officer for the state. Secretary Jocelyn Benson, thanks so much. Coming up next, a deadly and growing problem in America, a stunning new report on police car chases and how many innocent lives are being claimed while police are in hot pursuit. Stay with us. In our Law and Justice lead today, police car chases end with hundreds dead every year in the United States. Most of those killed are not the drivers fleeing the police. The police officer, a passenger, or a bystander are far more likely to be killed. Investigative journalists at the San Francisco Chronicle dug through the records. They found the federal government is significantly undercounting the lives lost. In truth, at least 3,336 people were killed as a result of police pursuits from 2017 through 2022, the Chronicle concludes. More than 52,600 people were injured during that time from the same reason. And despite some cities putting tougher policies in place, limiting when police can chase, the problem appears to be getting worse. 2020 and 2021 were the two deadliest years on record. I'm joined now by reporter uh, Susie Nielsen, one of the co-authors of this report. Thank you so much. So how many Americans are killed or injured due to police chases? Yeah, so Jake, the problem is, is big and it's getting bigger. So in we found that in 2020 and 2021, nearly 700 people died from police chases in both of those years. So that's almost two people a day on average. Why does there not appear to be any reliable federal data on what we know is a, is a dangerous part of policing, sometimes a necessary part of policing, but always dangerous. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I think most experts agree that police should be allowed to pursue people suspected of violent crimes. But the reality is the vast majority of these chases are initiated over minor infractions, traffic stops, a, you know, maybe a broken taillight. We have a chase in our story that was initiated over a cracked windshield, uh, speeding five miles an hour above the speed limit. Um, we found that the reason the federal government is undercounting these deaths is, you know, it's part of a broader problem with police use of force. Um, you know, other news, other newspapers before us have found that um, the federal government also significantly undercounts uh, police shootings. But, you know, we thought that police chases were an even more hidden use of deadly force. You don't often see it described as a use of force, but that's what it is. Some cities have put into place uh, stricter rules about when police can and should chase a suspect. Have those stricter rules, have, have they had any impact? So, yes, we, we found that in some cities um, that have instituted restrictive policies, pursuit deaths and injuries do fall. But even when cities do impose these policies, officers who violate them are very rarely held accountable. So, we submitted like hundreds of records requests about police officers who were accused of violating their own department's policies and fatal chases. And we found that just five of them were, were convicted of crimes. Um, very, very few people, very, very few officers are charged with crimes related to misconduct. And 
I believe in that same data set, only 20 were fired. Most received very light discipline, if any discipline at all. And we should note, it's often dangerous for the police officers themselves to pursue uh, criminals uh, or suspected criminals. They, they uh, die in these pursuits more than the people they're pursuing, right? Well, we actually found just about 15 police officers over five, five or six years, six years, um, died in these chases. But it is indeed quite dangerous for these officers. They get injured very often. You know, it's many of our experts called police chases the most dangerous thing that police officers regularly do in their jobs. And so it's worth asking, you know, if we care about both the police officers and the civilians they're sworn to protect, why are we allowing this activity to go so unregulated across the United States? Important journalism from Susie Nelson. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, CNN's Christiana Mampour on the ground in Bucha, Ukraine. This is two years after Russia's brutal occupation with evidence of mass murders there, of course. She says returning, out, returning to Bucha felt like standing in a graveyard. Stay with us. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, one man. One man could hold the fate of Ukraine in his hands. And today, that man, the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, was cornered by the President of the United States and his fellow top congressional leaders at what, at what is being called by the Senate Majority Leader one of the most intense meetings he's ever been to in the Oval Office. We'll have more on that. Plus, it was the site of one of the most brutal atrocities of the Russian invasion. Bodies tied up and shot, rapes, mass killings. CNN's Christiana Mapur returns to Bucha, Ukraine, two years later. Leading this hour, we are very close to learning whether President Biden has a major problem in a crucial battleground state. The final primary before Super Tuesday is underway in Michigan, and there is a movement against Biden within his own party over the ongoing war in Gaza. Joining us now from Waterford, Michigan, is CNN correspondent Omar Jimenez. Omar, what are you hearing on the ground from voters, especially any voters who are going to vote uncommitted uh, to protest Biden's policy vis-a-vis -vis Israel and Gaza. Yeah, so we've heard a wide range from a lot of different voters. For example, on the Trump side of things, for those voters, it seemed immigration and the economy were top of mind. Biden voters, it seemed the economy and human decency in the White House was top of mind. And for some of those voters who, one in particular we spoke to, who didn't exactly take the step to vote uncommitted, but he voted for Marianne Williamson, who, of course, announced she was suspending earlier this month, but for the very reason that he did not agree with how President Biden was handling the Israel-Hamas war. And this voter told us that he voted for Biden in 2020, but that this was too far and that the civilian death toll in Gaza was where he drew the line. Now, as we know, there is a major movement from the Listen to Michigan uh, campaign, as has been put out, to vote uncommitted, again, to protest that very 
very same thing. And what's significant about here in Michigan is this state has the largest Arab American population of any state in the country, just under 150,000, which is significant because that's the margin that Joe Biden won the state back in 2020. Now, we spoke about the range that we've been hearing from folks. Obviously, it's not we're not expecting any surprises as far as who's going to win the primary on the Biden side or the Trump side of things. But do those general election clues are what people are looking for. Take a listen to some voters that we spoke to today about how they felt about Biden and Trump. Donald Trump is, what, three years younger than him? We're, we're not talking about a big difference here. And again, I think Joe will surround himself with good, smart, capable people that will guide him if he's on the wrong path. But he is a good human being. I couldn't say that about Donald Trump. I'm a UAW member, you know, a retired UAW member. And I should be more democratic than anything else. But, you know, like Biden said, I don't work for you. And he hasn't. He hasn't worked for me and his policies aren't working for me. Now, from a voting perspective, from a pure numbers perspective, what was interesting about this cycle is that this is the first election test we've seen since the state allowed early in-person voting. And a lot of people took advantage of that by the tens of thousands, but also absentee voting. When you combine those two, over a million people already voted. And when you take a look at the fact that over a little bit more than two million people voted in 2020's primary, obviously a huge chunk, which is, uh, I'm going to say that's why there aren't that many people here at this point right now. Um, it's not like people aren't voting, but what we've seen at this location has definitely been uh, a little quieter than what we've seen in the past, at least according to some of the election officials here. All right, Omar Jimenez, thank you so much. Joining us live from Salt Lake City is Kylie Atwood. She's traveling with Nikki Haley's campaign. And Kylie, Governor Haley is bracing for another potential major loss uh, against Donald Trump. What is she saying about that? Yeah, that's right. I mean, Nikki Haley is really trying to focus on what's in front of her. And one of the cases that she has increasingly made to voters about Donald Trump not having a path forward uh, is because of all of the drama surrounding him. She's really focused in on the things that he has said, the actions that he has taken, particularly the fact that he has used campaign donations to pay legal bills. And in a conversation with the Wall Street Journal earlier today, uh, she said that she believes that he may be in survival mode with this campaign, using the campaign to pay those legal fees, using it to avoid legal peril, and then going on to say that that is like suicide for the country. Some really strong language from her today. She also is on CNN, and she essentially made this case to Republicans as they should be choosing her to save the party. We are telling you, for all the Republican Party, we are in a ship with a hole in it. You can either ignore the hole and go down with the ship, or you can acknowledge that we've got to look for a life raft. So we'll have to see what happens for Nikki Haley's campaign tonight in Michigan. But then she is headed on to Super Tuesday states coming here to Utah tomorrow. This is one of those 15 states that votes on Super Tuesday. And it'll be interesting to see what happens in Michigan because how well she does there could give us some indication for how well she might do in these other states because she has not been able to spend the amount of time, energy and resources in all of these states that she has in those early states. She still hasn't beat Donald Trump. Jake. All right, Kylie Atwood, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Joining us now to discuss the Michigan primary is Lavora Barnes. She's the chair of the Michigan Democratic Party. 
Uh, Chair Barnes, thanks for joining us. How concerned are you about this, about this campaign uh, to encourage Democrats to vote uncommitted instead of for President Biden to send a message uh, that he should stop funding Israel and he should support an immediate ceasefire in Gaza? Jake, we worked hard to be a part of the early state process of the Democratic primaries for just this reason, so that our voters could have their voices heard, so that our voters could participate early in the process and make sure that the candidate was listening to them and listening to their issues. And that's what's happening now. Um, these folks have made their voices heard, and I believe President Biden has heard them. Based on what he said yesterday about a ceasefire and the possibility of that happening as early as next week, it's clear to me that he has heard the voices of these Michiganders who've spoken up loudly. And uh, I'm thrilled that they're participating. I'm thrilled that they're going to vote and pulling a Democratic ballot. And um, I'm looking forward to taking that enthusiasm into November, where we will win by beating Donald Trump once again here in Michigan. So you think that President Biden's comments about the ceasefire yesterday uh, to the press and then also uh, on the Seth Meyers show, you think that was a direct result of this campaign uh, in Michigan to encourage people to vote uncommitted to protest his position when it comes to Israel and Gaza? I do. I believe this is a president of compassion and empathy. He's shown it over and over again. I know that he's been working on this for a long time behind the scenes. And I think that yesterday's language that he used and the timing of it suggests to me that he's he's heard the voters, not just in Michigan, but all over the country, but loudest, of course, here in Michigan, where our community has made it very clear um, that, that, that these are the words they wanted to hear from him. So let me ask you about the uncommitted vote uh, in previous primaries. Democratic and Republican, uh, it's been roughly 20,000 people who have voted uncommitted without a protest campaign. Just right. that's that's what they do uh, in 2012, in 2016, in 2020. Um, how many uncommitted votes do you think are going to be registered today in the Democratic primary? Uh, and do you think it will be more than 20,000? It's hard to take anything lower than 20,000 as necessarily any sort of indication of a protest vote, given that that's the floor, right? Voters here in Michigan have have uh, the, the right to choose that uncommitted vote, and folks have done it every cycle that I've been part of the party process. And uh, I, I think that as we look forward, which is what I want to do, to November, we're going to take all of these folks with their enthusiasm for participating in this process and make sure we're telling the story of who Joe Biden is, what Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have done for Americans and for Michiganders, and of course, the contrast of who Donald Trump is and what he's been very clear about what he wants to do when he's president again and what he did when he was president. And when we make that contrast and tell that story, the numbers that will matter are the votes that show up in November for Joe Biden when we win Michigan again. When President Biden went to Michigan earlier this month, he met with union workers. Um, he, he seemed to avoid areas such as Dearborn, where there are these large Arab American and Muslim American communities. Do you think he should have visited Dearborn? Do you think he should have engaged with those communities more? The president sent his aides to, to, to Dearborn um, multiple times, and, and he will continue to listen to that community. And I expect to see the president here in Michigan um, moving forward as we go through this election. There, there's, there's time for him to get here and have these conversations. If there are more than 20,000 uh, uncommitted votes, will you be worried about, because it seems to be about November, because it seems to be like that is a muscle flexing, like, look at us. And if you uh, continue to ignore us, 
we might not turn out. And as you know, President Trump won in 2016, beating Hillary Clinton by around 10,000 votes. Yeah, I I don't worry. I work, Jake. And um, as a state party, we have rebuilt ourselves after that 2016 loss to make sure that we're having conversations with voters all over the state all the time, year-round organizing on the ground. That means on the phones, on the doors, in the social media. And we're going to continue that, telling the story of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and the work they've done, and telling the story, of course, of who Donald Trump truly is. We're going to keep telling that story to folks. And I think as we get to November, with a clear choice, is between those two men, our folks will choose Joe Biden and Joe Biden will win again. Labora Barnes, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Coming up next, CNN returns to Bucha, Ukraine, two years after Putin's army committed brutal atrocities during their month-long occupation. Survivors still asking, how could this happen? And intense talks at the White House today over funding for Ukraine, with the House Speaker facing major pressure to unblock an aid package. What Speaker Johnson is saying after that meeting tonight. Stay with us. In our world lead now, images of the smoldering wreckage and carnage in Bucha, Ukraine, became some of the most damning evidence and haunting images of the brutal Russian atrocities in the earliest days of Putin's invasion. Now, two years later, as U.S. aid for Ukraine dries up, CNN's chief international correspondent and anchor Christiana Mampour has returned. A warning, some of the footage you're about to see is quite graphic. Father Andriy Halavin of St. Andrew's Church walks me through Bucha's grisly place in history. Hundreds were brutally killed here during Russia's month-long occupation, including women, children, the elderly. 99 years old. Oh my God, 1923 to 2022. Yes. 99 years old and a child of two years old. These people died not during the fighting, but during the occupation, says Father Andriy, when the Russian world came here. And this is its face. These are corpses. These are rape people. This is every apartment and house looted. This is the face of the Russian world. On this place, two trenches. Father Andri became known after the Russians were pushed back for revealing the site of a mass grave just here on his church grounds, filled with 160 people. He shows me the original posting about it on Facebook, March 12, 2022, when Russian forces were still occupying Bucha. And from this memorial, you can see that red house. Most of the family was killed as they tried to flee, when the Russians turned a heavy machine gun on their car. It still haunts and horrifies the grandmother, Valentina Chekmarova. It's very hard for me to remember this. Two years have passed, and it seems like it happened today, she says. I saw them off to get out of this hell, but they didn't. They were shot. This is the fate they were trying to escape. The main street, Yablunska, in this residential Kiev suburb, strewn with bodies, all clearly civilians. The discovery of basement torture and execution centers. People forced to kneel and lie with hands tied behind their backs. Women and girls raped. How could this happen? How could this happen? 
Standing in Yablonska Street today feels a little like standing in a graveyard. It's where the horrors of the Russian invasion were first exposed, and it remains a field of evidence, a memorial, and a pilgrimage site. We believe that these are war crimes, and this all would be recognized as a genocide by the world. President Zelensky came here April 4th, 2022, right after his forces drove the Russians out. And he brings all his international visitors and world leaders to Bucha to remind the world just what they're fighting against. Moscow has claimed without evidence that this was all staged and was a planned media campaign. Ruslan Kravchenko was the war crimes prosecutor. He's now governor of the Kyiv region. It's a fake. Do you remember when the Russians said it was fake and the bodies were fake and that the Ukrainians had killed people themselves, he asked me? When we seized the phones, we proved to the whole world that it was the Russians who killed people, Ukrainians. Ruslan says the war crimes investigations continue, using a trove of evidence from multiple cameras, phones and other recordings. But when they inform the Russian soldiers they identify, they don't cooperate. And Father Andrei tells us the awful truth is that bodies are still being discovered today, two years on. From time to time we find someone by accident, he says. The Russians had hidden their bodies somewhere and we find them. So unfortunately, the number of people who died is increasing. Christiana Manpur, CNN, Bucha. And back home, a White House meeting today over funding for Ukraine apparently got very heated with the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, under pressure to unblock the aid package that the Senate passed. Two House members working to go around Speaker Johnson. Join us next. In our national lead, President Biden gathered congressional leaders in the Oval Office today. Among the topics, the money that Ukrainian forces desperately need in their fight against Russia. In Ukraine, I think the need is urgent. I hope we get to speak to that a little bit. And uh, I think the consequences of inaction every day in Ukraine are dire. On the Senate side, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, a Democrat, called this one of the most intense meetings he's ever had in the Oval Office. Republican Leader Mitch McConnell spoke of, quote, making real headway. But the reality of the situation is the, the fate of the funding for Ukraine and Israel rests now with the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson. I'm joined now by two members of the House who say they are no longer are willing to wait for Speaker Johnson, and they're trying to force a vote themselves through what's called a discharge petition. With us are Republican Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick of the Great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and Democratic Congressman Jared Golden from the great state of Maine. Congressman Golden, let me start with you. You're both pitching this pared-down proposal for Ukraine aid, border security, um, and, and Israel aid also, right? $49 billion instead of $60 billion. And this move is a discharge petition. Uh, just to explain very quickly, you, you need 218 votes to pass something on the floor of the House. In this case, you need 218 signatures even to force it onto the floor for a vote, even if the Speaker opposes it. How many votes do you, how many signatures do you have on the discharge petition right now? Well, right now, I think I would actually leave it to Brian to answer that question because he submitted uh, the the uh, discharge petition itself. Uh, but I, I think the answer is, is we don't necessarily have any because we haven't been back in session. 
uh, and we should be in session given the twin crises that Brian and I are trying to deal with, which is the crisis at our southern border and, of course, the crisis on the battlefield in Ukraine that we're trying to avert. So, um, you know, I think a key point here is the Democratic minority has often tried to use the discharge petition as a tool for trying to pressure uh, you know, the majority, no matter who is in the majority, and as a way to try and force uh, things to the House floor. Uh, I've yet to see any uh, members of the you know, Republican majority sign any discharge petition. So what's significant about this is the fact that ours is led by a Republican, Brian Fitzpatrick, who's trying to do the right thing here out of an acknowledgement of the importance of these issues and how timely they are. I'm old enough to remember Republicans forcing something onto the floor in the discharge petition, but they were led by Newt Gingrich. I think this was 1993, 1994. Um, Congressman Golden, uh, before we go to Congressman uh, Fitzpatrick, there's funding for Israel in this as well, right? Congressman Golden? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were directing this one to to my colleague, Brian. I, I, I hear you now. There's funding for Israel? Of course, funding for Israel, funding, so, funding for Taiwan, uh, but, the, but right. the main part here is funding for Ukraine. Ukraine and the border. The, the reason I ask is because there are some Democrats, like in the squad and others, who won't support it because of funding for Israel. And I'm wondering if you think that's going to be impediment, an impediment to getting Democratic signatures. I think that getting anything done as it relates to supporting our allies in, in the fight in Ukraine, in Israel, uh, supporting Taiwan and addressing the crisis at the border is gonna have to grow out of the middle. And so I'm not as concerned about people on the far left or far right. So Congressman Fitzpatrick, are there other Republicans that will join you? This is, as Congressman Golden was alluding, this is bold of you to do, brave of you to do. Are there other Republicans that will join you in going around Speaker Johnson to force a vote on funding for Ukraine? Uh, there is. In fact, I spoke to several just last night. Um, and I, I wouldn't um, necessarily phrase this, Jake, as going around anybody. This is just to add a pressure point. You know, the politics are very, very tough, as you are well aware, uh, in the House. There's a two-vote margin in the House uh, for Republicans, a two-vote Democrat margin in the Senate um, on very, very tough existential time-sensitive issues. So we're not trying to circumvent or, or end-run anyone. Quite, Quite to the contrary. We're trying to put an additional pressure point uh, on something that has to happen. Um, as you know, Jake, I used to live in Ukraine. I was an FBI agent in Kyiv. I just got back from Kyiv uh, a few days ago. Um, and I'm, I, I spoke at length to President Zelensky in Munich uh, with, uh, with uh, Chairman Turner, Hakeem Jeffries. And, you know, he, he has weeks and not months uh, before Russia makes a major breakthrough on those front lines. This is a legacy type issue. We cannot sit back and play politics with people's lives. And one of the things that Jared and I have been working on is tying, you know, borders, you know, across the globe, both, you know, Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, and our own southern border. Uh, Because if we're going to sustain this effort, because Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, Kim Jong-un, the Ayatollah, they're not going away. They're persistent. They're persistent threats. So we have to have a persistent message. And the persistent message is that borders and democracies are inextricably intertwined, and democracies are necessary for freedom. And mm-hmm. we cannot have a situation where, you know, Advika falls to Russia as it did in the past week. And uh, 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 Lakin uh, Riley passes away, gets killed, I'm sorry, gets murdered yeah. 
um, in Georgia. And in, in, in the past seven days as well, um, Jake, 200 families had to bury their child for fentanyl overdoses that we can link directly back to the southern border. So this is a message about borders and democracies and how they're interlinked. So you said that you have talked to Republicans who are willing to sign the discharge petition. Can you name any of them? <clears throat> yep. I'd rather not. I'm going to keep our conversations private out of respect to them. So, Congressman Golden, um, the, the, one of the reasons that this is $49 billion instead of $60 billion is because uh, money for humanitarian aid for Gaza is not included in this. Why, why is it not included? Well, for starters, Brian and I really wanted to boil the bill uh, out of the Senate down to its base uh, and start from a place where we could agree um, and where we think many Dems and Republicans can agree. What is the, the greatest kind of emergency? Uh, what is most pressing? And we think the answer to that is getting control at our border, giving tools to the Border Patrol to do that. And secondly, it is military assistance to the battlefield in Ukraine. Uh, we're not opposed to humanitarian aid. And in fact, Brian has set up a process where if we get this bill to the floor, there will be amendments and opportunities to uh, let the House decide whether or not to include humanitarian aid. Some people think that should be given. Some people think it should be in the form of a loan. So we're open to the debate. Yeah. So you talked about the, the need for there to be um, security at the southern border. And, and the border security part of, of this legislation that you two are pushing and want the signatures of 218 of your fellow congressmen and women uh, to force it onto the floor for, for a vote. Um, it reinstates the remain in Mexico policy. Uh, and I'm wondering, uh, Congressman Fitzpatrick, that seems like something that would be a sweetener for Republicans uh, that even goes farther. That part of it goes farther than the compromise legislation that was worked on in the Senate. But I'm wondering if however much I like what you guys are doing and however much I think the discharge petition process should be used all the time, I'm wondering if you almost are naively believing that people want to solve the problem as opposed to run on it in November. Well, that's on, that's on every single member to make that decision for themselves and their districts. Uh, I will tell you, Jake, that um, the, the battle that Ukraine is fighting against Russia is not just about Ukraine. This is about freedom versus dictatorship. Uh, we have dictators across the globe that are trying to relitigate the outcome of World War II. Democracy prevailed in World War II, and yet you have these dictators that are rising. Some, by the way, uh, are, you know, even in NATO-type countries, um, the, you know, NATO countries like, like uh, Turkey and Hungary that are backsliding towards dictatorship. So this is a grave threat, and we either side on the, uh, on the, on the, on the perspective of freedom and democracy, or um, we don't, and that's a decision that everybody needs to make. But to make this, this, make this uh, argument over the long term, Jake, we have to be about borders. And if you support our border, you have to support other democracies' borders. And if you support uh, borders of our, our allies overseas, you have to defend our border. And that's what our, that's what our bill is about. And, and we're willing to, to, to die on this hill, uh, Jake. This is time-sensitive, it's existential, and this is a legacy-type item. All right, Congressman Brian Fitzgerald, yeah. uh, Fitzpatrick rather, of Pennsylvania, and Jared Golden of Maine. Thanks to both of you. Best of luck uh, with the discharge petition. 
You bet. Thanks. Thank you, Jake. More to come with our political panel on the aid fight in President Biden's battle in Michigan to win back the support of some Democratic voters breaking with him over the war in Gaza. We're about to learn how many very soon. Stay with us. In our politics lead, President Biden is urging congressional leaders to try to reach an agreement on desperately needed aid to Ukraine. He hosted leaders Schumer and McConnell, Speaker Johnson and Leader Jeffries in the Oval Office earlier. The president also talked about aid to Israel, and that is a major issue in today's Democratic primary in Michigan, where there is a movement underway on the left to have Democratic voters go uncommitted instead of for Biden. This would be a protest against Biden's refusal to call for an immediate ceasefire without conditions in Gaza. Let's bring in our uh, political panel. We have with us Republican strategist Alice Stewart, former National Coalition's Director for the 2020 Biden-Harris campaign, Ashley Allison, and CNN senior political analyst Ron Brownstein. Ron, let me just start with you. So after that tense meeting, House Speaker Johnson told reporters at the White House he thinks that Congress, quote, must take care of America's needs first before any agreement on Ukraine aid can get through. Um, America's needs, I guess, yeah. defines as the border. I mean, we we are in the upside down, right? I mean, you know, Mike Johnson has refused to bring to the floor the bipartisan border bill that would have probably passed the Senate with 60 votes if the House uh, had been willing to do it. And then he says that the reason they can't deal with it is because, you know, there's no legislation on that. This is a momentous moment, though. I think, you know, it's important to understand, like, the magnitude of what we're watching. Uh, when Dwight Eisenhower beat Robert Taft in 1952, it was viewed as the victory in the Republican Party of the internationalists over the isolationist forces. That has been the balance of power in every Republican presidency since even under Trump, there was a significant remnant of Reaganite internationalists in the Congress and even in his administration who resisted this kind of neo-nationalist inward pulling. Now we're in a situation where a majority of House Republicans voted against Ukraine aid, a majority of Senate Republicans voted against it. The House will not even take it up. We are watching the bookend mm -hmm. to really 70 years of political history and one that takes the Republican Party in an, ex an extraordinary new direction that we haven't seen really since before World War II. Although Speaker Johnson could have his cake and eat it too Ooh. if he doesn't lobby against the uh, Fitzpatrick golden uh, proposal that we just talked about with this members of Congress. And just to reiterate for those just joining us, a Republican and a Democrat have a pared down aid bill uh, $49 billion, aid to Ukraine, aid to Israel, aid to Taiwan, and aid to the border. Uh, it is more conservative than uh, the bill that they were working on in the Senate because it has no humanitarian aid for Gaza, and it has the remain in Mexico policy at the border. But Fitzpatrick is saying it would be an open amendment process, so people, the will of the people could actually work its way. Now, for some reason, that's not how our Congress functions. But in my <laughs> mind, what's the problem with getting it out on the floor, Having people vote for amendments, make it better, make it, make it a better bill. I don't care, but have something happen. Well, to a logical person who actually wants to do the job that they were elected or in some instances hired to do, they would do it. But that's not what, who, what Mike Johnson wants to do. He said over and over, I want to meet with the president. Well, you just met with the president. Let's move something forward. But they are obstructionists. They want to campaign on the issue of the border. And then when Democrats said and gave great concessions to Ron's point on the immigration bill, um, they stopped it because they want it to be red meat to their base. They are not interested in governing. They are not interested in protecting democracy here or in Ukraine. And they, they are really playing gambling with 
the, the stability of America's role in the world um, and also our stability as a country. And it's unfortunate. And to, to fi my final point is, you know, Ron was said that it's a bookend to a 70 year, but that bookend had a massive whiplash just about eight years ago. Mm -hmm. And that became because of Donald Trump, who is taking this party into a direction that doesn't want democracy. And here's the real problem here in Washington is Congress and members of Congress are so transactional. They won't give you X unless you give them Y. And that goes on both sides of the aisle. And if you really take a look at all of these issues that we're talking about, whether it's Israel, whether it's, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's even Taiwan and the border, each and every one of these are worthy of support from both sides in and of themselves because they are so important. And Republicans could get what they want on each of these issues and Democrats could also get what they want. But th that doesn't happen in Washington anymore. And not only is it disingenuous in terms of getting things done, it's dangerous because yeah. now we have the crisis at the border and we have the escalation of the crisis that we have uh, in Israel and Ukraine. And all of these are issues that if they were smart and did the job that they were hired to do, they would handle these individually and get things done. Well, Speaker Johnson won't even put it, put the Senate bill no. on right. the floor. If it, if it was on the floor, it would probably pass. Yeah. It'll probably get most Democrats and a, a big chunk of Republicans. But that's the risk of letting the will of the people uh, work, its way, work, well, work its way onto the floor. And a big part of that, and I, I was encouraged when he came out today saying he was optimistic that they would make progress, at least on the, the spending bill. But the problem with many Republicans is not necessarily many Republicans, it's Donald Trump. He is the one calling all the shots, and they are afraid to stand up to him. And uh, Johnson and many of the House Republicans, anyway, want more of a version of H.R. 2, which is what they put forth, which they see as a better way to uh, secure the border and, and limit the asylum process. But again, their desire to stick with H.R. 2 or nothing gives us a situation where we have no progress at the border, mm. and they're letting the perfect be the enemy of the yeah. good, and yeah. meanwhile, there's a crisis at the border. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. What if... H.R. 2 came, uh, came to the, which the House passed, it's a very conservative uh, border bill, went to the Senate, and, and Speaker, uh, I'm sorry, and, and Leader uh, Schumer let it come up for a vote, right? I mean, that would never happen because right. he opposes it. <laughs> right. He opposes it. Right. But, and then Donald Trump said, I don't want that to pass either. It wouldn't pass. I mean, I don't want that to pass either because I want this issue. Yeah, no, I, look, the, Donald Trump has broken the will of the Republican Party to resist him on almost, on almost any front. I mean, you're seeing John Thune endorse him. There's reports of McConnell uh, getting ready to do so. I think it would be hard for the, the remain in Mexico is a, is a hard piece for Democrats. I even wonder if there's 218 votes mm -hmm. in the House for that version uh, that they've come forward with. But look, I mean, the Senate bill, the, the thing to understand about the Senate bill is that all of the, cons quote, concessions to Democrats were on issues other than immigration. I mean, the immigration policy pretty consistently moves in a Republican direction, in particular by changing the standard that you for have asylum. to meet for yeah. asylum in a way that would re significantly reduce the number of asylum seekers who even get to first base. Yeah, that, some... that, and, and that was a clear conservative victory. It doesn't have everything they want, but as to Alice's point, in the old days, if you were getting, you know, Ronald Reagan used to say, you know, 75% agreement, you're my friend, not my, not my enemy. If you were getting 75% of what you want and giving up very little on the other side, you would take it. Now it's a very different world. By the right. way, the number of immigra major immigration bills that passed when Donald Trump was president and controlled the House and the Senate, zero. Zero. Absolutely zero. <laughs> Everyone, thanks so much. Uh, appreciate it. Coming up next, President Biden said he thinks a Gaza ceasefire deal could be reached by early next week, but both Israeli and Hamas officials are casting doubt on that. Stay with us. In our world lead, negotiators working on a hostage and ceasefire deal in Gaza and Israel are cautioning 
against President Biden's optimism that a deal could be reached by next Monday. An Israeli official tells CNN that Israel was surprised by Biden's timeline, while a Qatari official said that disagreements remain over how many Israeli hostages will be exchanged for how many Palestinian prisoners and whether Israeli troops will withdraw entirely from Gaza during the ceasefire. President Biden last night also outlined an idea that Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu has all but rejected. There's a process underway that I think if we get that that temporary ceasefire, we're going to be able to move in a direction where we can change the dynamic and not have a two-state solution immediately, but a process to get to a two-state solution. Let's bring in Barack Ravid, CNN political and global affairs analyst and foreign policy reporter for Axios. Barack, good to see you. So you have new reporting breaking this evening that in the midst of these hostage and ceasefire talks, the U.S. is seeking written assurances from Israeli leaders that they will abide by international law while using weaponry provided by the U.S. What is Israel's response? Well, um, I think, Jake, that the Israelis uh, um, are really concerned about this thing. Uh, um, Israeli officials told me that Prime Minister Netanyahu is freaking out uh, about this because he or somebody else from his government will have to commit in writing not only not to use U.S. weapons uh, uh, in a way that is contradictory to international law, but he will also have to commit in writing to allow uh, humanitarian aid into Gaza, any humanitarian aid from the U.S. or that has the support of the U.S. and not in any way hamper uh, uh, this aid from entering Gaza, something that, as, as we know, is not exactly the case right now. Uh, this thing is a result, by the way, of a new policy announced by uh, President Biden just a few weeks ago. And uh, U.S. officials told the Israelis today that they expect to get this written commitment by mid-March, which is two weeks from now. If Netanyahu and his government fail to comply with this U.S. demand, with this policy, what will the U.S. do? Uh, well, according to this policy, uh, if Netanyahu doesn't uh, provide such assurances in writing, and if the Secretary of State doesn't certify that you know he's okay with those assurances, then what happens is that uh, arms shipments from the U.S. to Israel will be paused, will be suspended. So, you know, and so we're basically two to three weeks away from such a scenario if Netanyahu doesn't provide those assurances. Without a ceasefire deal, President Biden said he warned Netanyahu that Israel will lose global support if it continues down its current path. Netanyahu made a, a point of, of pushing back on that with a video message. What did Netanyahu have to say? You know, it was interesting not only what he had to say, but how he said it. The prime minister's office issued a statement that said, here is a video with prime, ministers, prime minister Netanyahu's response to President Biden. So they wanted to make sure that it's clear to everybody that he's pushing back on what Biden said. And Netanyahu basically based his, his uh, argument on a new poll uh, um, that said that uh, um, four of every five Americans support Israel uh, and only one in every, in, in every five Americans support Hamas. And he basically told Biden, look, the majority of Americans are with me and not with you. That was the undertone of what he was trying to say, which is when you think about it, it takes us back 
to other uh, uh, arguments Netanyahu had with other U.S. presidents like President Obama, like President Clinton, it starts to feel the way. All right, Barack Ravid, thank you so much for that reporting and those insights. Thank Coming you. up next, justice for the murder of Run DMC's Jam Master Jay two decades later. Stay with us. Internationally today, a jury found two men guilty of murder in one of music's most shocking murders. Jam Master Jay was the DJ at the heart of the pioneering hip hop group Run DMC. He was tragically killed in a recording studio back in Jamaica, Queens in 2002. It took almost 18 years for anyone to even be charged. A jury found his childhood friend, Ronald Washington, and Jay's godson, Carl Jordan Jr., guilty. Prosecutors say the shooting stemmed from a dispute over drugs. A third defendant, Jay Bryant, was charged last year. He is set to stand trial in 2026. In our money lead today, Macy's is downsizing and going upscale in an attempt to stay relevant. The company is closing 150 stores. 50 of the underperforming stores will shut their doors this year. The others will follow in coming years. Macy's says it is turning its focus to its more successful luxury brands, such as Bloomingdale's and Blue Mercury. That would mean building smaller stores away from traditional shopping malls. As shoppers move away from malls, smaller stores are more profitable because they have fewer workers and less merchandise. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, X, formerly known as Twitter, and on the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can follow the show on X at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to the show whence you get your podcasts. I will be back in just two hours for a special coverage of the Michigan presidential primary, Democratic and Republican. Until then, the news continues right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.